Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. In a tree crotch, he's got my wristwatch, and he's laughing at me. I told the Mounties throughout the counties to put some bounties all over BC and stop that Sasquatch. Sasquatch, you know who he is a big, lumbering, hairy oaf. Sasquatch now pops up in everything from ads for coffee to jerky to manly soap. But you're not a dish. You're a man. Switch to Dr. Squatch Natural Soap for Men. For men who build things. He also appears in TV shows and movies, usually as a joke. Matt, what the hell is that? Randy, I think that's a Sasquatch. Yo, that's Bigfoot! Yo, I gotta get a selfie. No! Everybody stay absolutely still. That's what Sasquatch is in thousands of pop culture references. He's a cartoon, another big dumb monster for Bugs Bunny to outsmart. 
or he's a delusion, something that clowns swear they saw when they were drunk in the woods. Every time Sasquatch pops up, he's a little bit different. But one thing that's always the same is that Sasquatch is up for grabs, free for anyone to use. He's not Mickey Mouse or the Hulk. You don't have to get permission or pay royalties. He belongs to everyone. But that's new. For thousands of years, he belonged to us, to my people. Sasquatch means wild man. It comes from the Hunkamina word Sasquets. Sasquets, Sasquatch. Among Coast Salish people, the culture which includes my own First Nation, artistic representation of the creature in statues, in cave paintings, goes back thousands of years. This legendary creature goes by many other names along the coast. Zunukwa, Ukwa, or just Bigfoot. In the 20th century, Sasquatch was appropriated, or to put it bluntly, stolen. The man who stole him was an Indian agent, a white man employed by the federal government to enforce the racist policies of Canada on First Nations people. He took the Sasquatch story, put his name on it, and submitted it to Maclean's magazine in 1929. Every mention of Sasquatch or Bigfoot you grew up with can be traced back to that act of theft. Almost a century later, a one-time editor of Maclean's, Ken White, sparked a scandal when he and other Canadian media figures proposed the creation of what they called the Appropriation Prize, a mocking way to honor writers who, like J.W. Burns, steal the most shamelessly, with no regard at all for those who consider cultural appropriation to be a real problem. An op-ed has ignited a firestorm of controversy over cultural appropriation. Hal Nizvecki was the editor of that publication. He wrote that he didn't believe in cultural appropriation. He said there should be an award for doing so, the appropriation prize for the best book by an author who writes about people who aren't even remotely like him. The op-ed triggered criticism. Nizvecki resigned his position as editor. The resignation of Hal Nizvecki prompted Jonathan Kay, editor-in-chief of The Walrus, to post on Twitter saying... The mobbing of Hal Nizvecki is what we get when we let identity politics fundamentalists run riot. For years, the story of the Sasquatch has been my go-to explainer for what appropriation is about and why it does, in fact, matter. Sasquatch is important for me because it's important in my culture. You'll be hard-pressed to find a Salish person who doesn't accept the existence of the Sasquatch as at least a probable thing. Whether it's supernatural or an undocumented forest creature, there are too many references in our culture, too many first-hand accounts for it to be nothing. It deserves serious inquiry. But that can't happen while people are busy laughing at it. And I don't love how Sasquatch has been stolen and turned into a dumb joke. But also, I can't look away. It's just the perfect example of cultural appropriation. And that's the story I set out to tell you today, to look at the media angle and how McLean's magazine made this travesty happen. That's what I started trying to do. But in conversations with Salish writers and leaders, I've ended up somewhere very different. Because appropriation, it turns out, is complex. And two can play that game. At the end of this story, we're actually going to give out the first ever appropriation prize. But it's not to who you might think. I'm Robert Jago, a writer from the Kwantlen First Nation. And this is the true story of Sasquatch. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Wesley Routley, Lauren LaFrambois, Paul Morrison, Brad Campo, Jill Radjowitz, 
Connolly Van Lure, Alex Moore, and Aiden. I'm Aiden, a software person from Montreal, and I support Canada Land because you're all striving to do better. Between Thunder Bay and Commons and the Backbench and now Detour, and that bonus episode about like registering as a news org, super transparent, it's just clear that the whole team gives a hoot. I haven't been there um, at all. I would love to go there. That's Les Stroud, Canada's Survivor Man and creator of a 10-part documentary on Sasquatch called Survivor Man Bigfoot. You know, when you're doing a 10-part documentary series, you go with the flow of logistics for one thing, you know, where you have connections, and, you know, where you can go somewhere and when you can go there. And so no reason why I wouldn't have gone there. He's talking with me about a Bigfoot hotspot in southern B.C., Stroud is not a Bigfoot hunter. He's clear about that. He's researching the Bigfoot phenomenon, the spate of experiences people have been having for thousands of years in many different locations around the world. But as far as you know, how it differs with the indigenous cultures, anecdotal references, in fact, it really doesn't. I would suggest that if you sat down and listen, you know, you know, threw away any kind of racial stereotyping and listened to all of the varying demographics of stereotypes. When they start talking about Bigfoot, the similarities are pretty obvious. So, uh, in fact, there are not differences. There are more similarities. There's an idea of Sasquatch, something goofy, simple, and very different from the indigenous perspective. If that non-native idea of Sasquatch has a birthplace, it's around Harrison Lake, B.C., in the homeland of the Stalis people. The town of Harrison Hot Springs is a 90-minute drive from Vancouver, mountainous with a beautiful lake fronting the site of the ancient Stalis village of Quotes. However, what this town is most known for is being home to the Sasquatch. It's next to Sasquatch Mountain, Sasquatch Resort, and it's the site of the annual Sasquatch Days Festival. Life-sized wooden figures of the creature meet you as you enter the town, at the pizza place, in front of the hotels, at the wind chime store, with the single greatest concentration at the Sasquatch Museum. Robert Reyes is the executive director of Harrison's Sasquatch Museum. The indigenous perspective. And then there's also a lot of material here from the sort of investigators of Sasquatch. So Harrison and this region, Hemlock Valley, the Harrison River Valley, has always been a hotspot for Sasquatch sightings. So there's been a lot of activity here in terms of investigators. And we've gathered a lot of that material. They're very good at sort of documenting things. And we've gathered a lot of that material and put it in, in the museum. So we have everything from, you know, possible skulls to footprints to masks, you name it, we've got it. Can you tell me about where the legend of Bigfoot comes from? This film at Bluff Creek that got the Sasquatch legend going in the Western press in the, in the sort of early 60s, I'm thinking. I can't remember exactly the date. You've seen the Bluff Creek Bigfoot film, or at least a still from it. Until recently, it was the only video evidence of Sasquatch, a one-minute clip in Northern California in 1967 showing, well, someone ambling through the woods. That started people really looking. There'd been sightings long before that. So the interesting thing that I've learned having this museum, because we've had a lot of people come here that have had an experience, is how many people have an experience. It's just you know, I was a healthy skeptic coming into this, but I got to say I've got a much more open mind now as well because I've talked to a lot of people, very reasonable people, that have had these experiences. Reyes' colleague Bonnie Kent joins us and gestures to a photo on the wall. The picture is black and white. It's of a tall, angular man with the air of a spooky preacher straight out of an 80s horror movie. 
J.W. Burns worked in the school district in Staelis and many years ago and was actually gifted by somebody the original Sasquatch mask. And people for a long time believed that it had been stolen from the reserve when in fact it eventually made its way to the Museum of Anthropology and was repatriated to Staelis not too many years ago. J.W. Burns, Indian agent, and one-time contributor to McLean's magazine. Indian agents were the people appointed by federal authorities to rule as banker, judge, and prison guard over reserve-bound First Nations people in the first half of the 20th century. While the Sasquatch story really took off in the 1960s after the Bluff Creek film, Sasquatch, as mentioned, first entered Canadian culture in 1929 when J.W. Burns wrote an article titled Introducing BC's Hairy Giants for McLean's magazine. Here's a bit of it. He was twice as big as the average man, with hands so long that they almost touched the ground. It seemed to me that his eyes were very large, and the lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face, which gave the creature such a frightful appearance that I ran away as fast as I could. After a minute or two, I looked back and saw that he resumed his journey. The girl had fled before I left, and she ran so fast that I did not overtake her until I was close to Agassiz, where we told the story of our adventure to the Indians who were still enjoying themselves. Old Indians who were present said, the wild man was no doubt a Sasquatch, a tribe of hairy people whom they claim have always lived in the mountains, in tunnels, and caves. Do hairy giants inhabit the mountain solitudes of British Columbia? Many Indians, besides those quoted, are sincerely convinced that the Sasquatch, a few of them at least, still live in the little known interior of the province. The template for Sasquatch was laid down in that article. Giant, hairy, ape-like. A creature that threw boulders and who was a step above an animal. Kelsey Charlie is counselor for the Stalis First Nation, about 10 kilometers downriver from Harrison Hot Springs, the touristy Sasquatch-themed town. He's a go-to person on everything Sasquatch. We met on the banks of Harrison Lake. There's geese coming for us. Yeah. (laughs) Are these friendly, like city geese, or are they... No, they'll be good to us, though, because we're home. Okay, good. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Kelsey Charlie grew up with Sasquatch as part of his world. Sasquatch were not a prize to seek out or hunt down. They were a helpful presence that came to those who were ready for them. When we're up hunting, there's a place called Lookout Lake, a lake up in the top. And then right around the corner, there's 20 Mile Bay. And then we go in and it's called Mystery Valley. It takes you right to the north end of Chehalis Lake. So we get up to Lookout. There's an old log in there and then it kind of meanders down, switches back down. So I get to the top, and my dad and my uncles and me and my two cousins get off there. So we went in there, and we got maybe halfway down this mountain, trying not to step on leaves and stuff, because it was kind of loud. And then all of a sudden I heard this, like, knock, knock, knock. Something hitting the, 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 the tree. So I looked over at my cousin, and he kind of smiled at me and we were all just going. So I walked over and I grabbed a, a big stick and I walked over to the tree and I went, oh, oh, oh. And I just hit, hit it and then, then we heard some kind of like a, it sounded like an elk squeal, like a, a bugle. We thought it was elk, and, but at that time we didn't have elk there. 
So I went over there and then I hit the thing again, knock, knock, knock. It knocks back. So we were, oh, that's pretty awesome. So we walked down this trail and we got down towards where the thing is and then all we hear is just like, bang, boom, boom. And then we were standing there and um, they nailed him on the, there's a bridge, they, there's deer were right over going towards that bridge. But uh, my dad was wondering why the things didn't run up. But, and I said, well, probably didn't run up there because you guys are hitting a tree. How come you're knocking the tree? And my grandpa, the one that's from Kite, so we weren't knocking the tree. We heard you guys knocking the tree, but there was something over there. We thought that was, we thought you guys split up. And you guys were just trying to ch chase the deer over. And then my grandpa said, no, no, that's the, that's the Sasquatch that's doing that. So it helped us get the deer that day. <laughs> yeah. I asked Kelsey if the Sasquatch has ever hurt anyone. He tells me about a time when someone violated the land and was met with a hostile response. Probably what, maybe within 25 years ago is they, right at Saskatchewan, this mountain, where those paintings are, there's a channel that goes in and it's called Morris Creek. And there's a, a spawning area. We were fishing on the Harrison River in one of those times we were, we were allowed to fish out there. But the rule was, the age-old rule that everybody knows, you don't fish in spawning grounds. You move up and you get into the main stem. And this crazy guy went up there and he goes and sets his net up in the, at, the, at the mouth of this thing, getting greedy. So he gets himself set up. And then all of a sudden these rocks come flying off the mountain into the water. You can see how big these rocks are after. Like we went up there the next day when the daylight, like seeing these big rocks in the water. And then the elders had, like scolded that guy because we all just told who it was, right? We said, no, it was so-and-so. He was up there doing what he's not supposed to. Well, who the heck could have threw those in there? No human. Kelsey's understanding of Sasquatch is so different than the tacky, cheesy, silly version exploited by the tourist traps at Harrison Hot Springs. It's hard for me to understand why his people would have anything to do with the commercialized version, but they do. His First Nation is a big part of that town's Sasquatch Days Festival, opening it with traditional prayer, marching in the parade, and contributing an ancient mask of Sasquatch that they recently repatriated from a BC museum. They did the canoe races here because this was a newer tourism town. So they actually um, worked in collaboration with our community and put up some money so that we could have our race here rather than having the race on the Chehalis Reserve, which is just around the corner from here. So they put up some money so that they, they could gain exposure and, and, and bring more people here. It seems like part of the way that the Sasquatch story got into the, the Western mind is because people were practicing in public, in tourism, mm -hmm. as the only way of practicing their culture. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Just like I, I shared with you some of the names before, um, the Leon family and the, those Leons, the, especially my teacher who, who shared a lot with me, he went to jail because he practiced his culture and tradition in an open forum. He had to go to jail. You know, now here we are today, we're free and we're allowed to do that. And I always tell all of the young ones that I, that come along, I was grateful to, to have spend that time with these old guys. And so when I come here and I do a lot of uh, welcome ceremonies and greetings to the people, we come here on Canada Day and all of those things. And we stand with the mayor and the mayor comes with us, we're working together. But um, we always say that when we're doing things like that, it's not tokenism. I'm not coming here to do, do a performance. I'm coming here to do ceremony. I'm coming here to use my breath and to to share something that comes from my sacred inheritance.
And this is where my whole thesis about the Sasquatch simply being stolen and exploited falls apart. Hey, it's Matea Roach. I'm the new host of The Backbench, Candleland's politics show. Join me and some fantastic panelists for a first episode that comes out on Tuesday. We'll be talking about the new Conservative Party leader, Pierre Poiliev, and also what it means for Canada now that the Queen is dead. Subscribe to The Backbench wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars and I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. What I didn't realize until now was that the stateless people stole him back, exploiting the kitschy public interest in Sasquatch as a loophole, a rare exception to rules that prohibited us from practicing our own culture without fear of prison. Burns took Stalis's masks, told the story of McLean's, and toured the country for profit, and the Stalis played along. Why? Because the Canada of the 1930s was virtually Stalinist in its treatment of Indigenous peoples. No freedom of movement, no freedom of speech, no freedom to choose what job you want to do, no freedom of mobility. The residential school systems were at their deadliest worst, and on top of that, it was illegal to practice your faith and your culture. But when it came to Sasquatch, an exception was made. The Stalis, in effect, appropriated appropriation. My name is Max Brooks. I am the author of the Sasquatch novel, Devolution. Devolution is the latest novel by Max Brooks, who is probably best known for writing World War Z. Devolution is about a Sasquatch massacre in the Cascade Mountains of Washington State. 
Three hits, then paused. The knocking stopped. We all froze. The grunts grew louder. Vincent beamed. The knocking resumed, faster this time, louder. Okay, yes, yes! Vincent whispered to us and banged back faster with his pole. I heard him whisper, friends, 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 as he hammered the common house wall. After a dozen rapid strikes, he stopped. They responded in kind. I talked to Brooks about the source materials for his book and what he thought about cultural appropriation and Sasquatch. Every culture borrows from another culture. We don't, we literally, we do not live in vacuums. That is not how our species works. But also for me as a writer, I think it's very, I, I am, I am militantly against this notion that you must be of a tribe to only write about that tribe. I think mm-hmm. that is, that is a sin against art. Because mm-hmm. the role of the artist is to allow people who are not, who don't wear those shoes to walk in them for a little bit. It's a window into other people, not just culture, but it's a window into other people's lives. First of all, the the human species is built on so-called appropriation. There's no such thing. I mean, people can say, people can claim that something started with them, but to say that other people have been influenced by it, welcome to the human race. That is how we have advanced as a species. One group discovers fire, another group discovers the bow and arrow, uh, one group discovers an alphabet. Another group discovers that you can plant seeds and we all come together. Nobody owns Sasquatch. Like I said, everybody, every group on this planet has a myth or a story about it. And everybody has their own sort of take on it, which is, that's actually another reason that I went straight up biological is I didn't want to base it on anybody's cultural beliefs. I wanted to base it on the pure science of what if there was a great ape in North America. To some people, Brooks's attitude towards cultural appropriation may sound like the glorification of appropriation that sparked a scandal here in Canada when Ken White and others jumped on board to launch an appropriation prize. But there is a distinction. So I know I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying that, but I believe writers should be free to write about whoever they want to write about. My hope is that they do it with respect and their heart's in the right place. There is straight up exploitation, which I'm not a fan of, and I don't agree with that. And I'm hoping that if you are going to try to write about another culture, that you do your due diligence and you do your homework. And it's coming from a place of honor and respect. But Mm -hmm. I do not believe in artistic segregation. And I never will. That distinction matters, and not just to fiction writers. To me, it's really about intent. And I don't mean intent in the sense that we should set out to deliberately honor or uplift some community or other, or that we should express solidarity or allyship or anything like that. Because when you do that, that's just another kind of propaganda. It's well-intentioned, but it's essentially propaganda. What I mean is that you shouldn't be intending to mock or belittle whole groups of humanity with your words. That's Jonathan Kay, editor of Quillette, my former editor at The Walrus magazine, and one of the figures involved in the appropriation prize controversy. I spoke to Kay to ask, where is his thinking now on the topic? Whether appropriation is something to celebrate and encourage, as he and others seem to do online, or whether it's something to denounce? Well, according to Kay, that depends on whose culture is being appropriated and how. And he's persuaded that a certain kind of cultural theft is egregious. So in terms of the most 
egregious kinds of cultural appropriation, which is the sort of thing that I think even I would be convinced to denounce. I mean, I don't think it should be illegal, but it rubs me the wrong way. It's when you have like a white novelist or a film director who passes through a particular region and he hears some garbled version of folklore that relates to, say, a nearby indigenous community. And then the person thinks, oh, wow, that would make a great subject for a novel or a TV show or whatever. And then that person makes a ton of money based on a garbled version of somebody else's folklore without ever really consulting that group, let alone letting them share in the creative process or financial remuneration. In other words, the way J.W. Burns appropriated Sasquatch. But when it comes to his own people's culture, Kay doesn't much care if it's swiped. So in general, my sense is that Communities that have lots and lots of chances to tell their stories and to educate people about their culture and get the real version of their history and their narratives into books, those are the communities that probably are not going to be particularly concerned with appropriation. And I'm thinking here of the Jewish community, which has had a lot of its stories and a lot of its values transmitted into Western media. So if someone makes a remake of Fiddler on the Roof with an all-Gentile cast, I wouldn't care. I'm guessing many Jews wouldn't care either, because there's already lots of versions of Fiddler on the Roof. But I know that I wouldn't take this attitude if I were part of a small indigenous community that never had its Fiddler on the Roof, or its Diary of Anne Frank, or its Exodus, or Herzog, or its Bible, or its Talmud. In fact, I'd say since the whole cultural appropriation issue blew up, it's made me think about how much of my attitude to the issue is tied up with my Jewish background. Because since the Babylonian captivity, and this is more than two millennia ago, Jewish culture has essentially been portable. Because at the time, Jews had been thrown out of Judea and Samaria. Essentially, for 2,000 years, Jewish culture became an appropriated mishmash of every place that Jews went, uh, every refuge, every exile, every migration, every shtetl. They, they brought their own Jewish culture, and they often left with bits and pieces of the places that they went to. You have all this promiscuous linguistic appropriation, rootless cosmopolitanism, to appropriate a phrase from anti-Semites, the creation of languages like Yiddish and Ladino, which are, are mashups with Hebrew. That kind of mashup, appropriated approach to culture, it's the very opposite of the ideal that is sometimes applied to indigenous communities. Uh, in Canada, especially in regard to indigenous communities, there's this idealized conception of indigeneity, especially in the world of arts and letters. The idea of indigenous people as this timelessly unchanging group of people rooted in a particular patch of land, living their authentic life, transmitting it vertically to their children and their descendants one generation to the next. And it's this thing that is pure and unadulterated, and you can't appropriate it, and you can't even experience it if you're not part of that culture. In many ways, that's the opposite of the kind of attitude toward cultural mixing that was passed down to me through my own background. I appreciate what Kay is expressing. It's a lot more nuanced and thoughtful than the, yay, we love appropriation, let's give it a prize, jeering, that he and a bunch of other influential writers and editors teamed up on five years ago. And I agree with him that the stultifying conception of indigenous culture as a fixed set of authentic lore, passed down, never changing, from elder to youth, well, that's an idealized conception from white people. It's not how things actually work, and it never has been. It's certainly not what has happened since with Sasquatch. By playing along with the exploitation of Sasquatch, Stalis helped ensure that the real legend of Sasquatch wouldn't be lost to indigenous peoples today. As so many other legends of ours have been lost, they've helped keep it a living legend 
not crystallized lore, but a dynamic and changing part of our 21st century indigenous culture. And if writers like Brooks can evolve his own tales on top of the Sasquatch legend, well, so can native writers. My name is Joseph Anthony Danner, and I go by Tony. Quantlin Nooksack member. I'm a writer, poet, playwright, father of three, fisherman, archaeologist. I am the manager of the Quantlin Cultural Center. I've been working for my people for 30 years now. Like all our oral stuff is pretty much lost. And for, as a writer, for me to get stories from, I'd been friends with the Kelsey, the Charlie boys for years now, and they would always talk about Sasquatch and all that. And then I said, oh, okay, so I wouldn't use their stories, but I used the characters in Sasquatch. So I wrote a bunch of plays, and always using the character Sasquatch. And the children's theater company I was working with, uh, funding during COVID to do films based on my plays. So that's where that film was produced. Who is Sasquatch in the stories? Sasquatch is usually a character. In the original play I wrote, she was more like a minion to uh, Thwaxia, who is a myth, uh, also known as Sinoqua, like this mythological cannibal woman. And it's like a Hansel and Gretel story where you, you know, teach your kids, you better listen or Thwaxia is going to grab you. And the original play was based on Thwaxia was a, a ceremonial food dish carving. And her legs were made up of these two minions in the original play. Uh, Sasquatch was one of the minions that made up one of her legs, and the other one was Halls. But then I had to shorten the script down to cut a few characters out, so I just went with Sasquatch. And so I always use Sasquatch as a, a healer in most of my plays. Tony's Sasquatch relies in its fundamentals on what was saved and protected by Stalis. In my First Nation, Kwantlen, we weren't so fortunate. Reconstructing our old oral histories will take years. But while that work continues, artists and writers such as Tony Danderand use the embers of truth and culture that have been saved to create new works. Because while Canada tried to shut our societies down and lock it all away, we remain at our core in open culture. There's no sense of ownership about the story mm-hmm. per se. Mm-hmm. Not like we see with like, you know, Korea or whatever people in the East. But it's just like, the only reason that if there's any possessiveness about the story is just because we know it better because Mm -hmm. we've been here longer. Yeah. 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 I like that. That's why I make, I can write stories about like one of my newest books is about a sturgeon and in my poetry I use like Sasquatch all the time. He's, he's a guy, he's a drunk guy downtown east side shooting heroin in some of my poems, you know what I mean? But he's down there. He goes out at night, walking slowly. They say he fell from the sky several decades ago, but now he is a fully grown Sasquatch. In the winter, the poor souls gather round him for warmth, and he hugs them one by one. He likes to smoke cigars, and does so in his one room, just off the main drag. As he blows the smoke, he brushes his long hair from his face and takes a sip of cheap wine, stares at his feet. He smiles, remembering his mother telling him to keep his big feet clean. So he does, as the scar smoke fills his one room, his hair hand raising one last toast to his mother. You are asked to witness. Remember, tell people what you see here. These are the words you hear at the beginning of all but the most sacred of Salish ceremonies. When you hear one of our stories, you are meant to share them. The sharing of that knowledge and that awareness of history is the determiner of class in Coast Salish society. Those that have a knowledge of history and culture are worthy and are good people. Those that don't, well, keeping the truth to ourselves to enrich ourselves in any way is a crime. 
And not just a crime here on earth, but a mortal sin, a crime against the gods themselves. I first approached this story from the idea of appropriation and taking the Sasquatch story back and making it a purer version, more ours. Mea culpa. I was wrong. Here's Kelsey Charlie again. I think it's just crazy. In our way, um, you never ever go and look for something. You never ever go and want anything. You don't never ever go and try and be something. You know, everything that you get, it's, you just receive that. And it's it's so naturally and organically you, you receive that. And uh, in our whole village and, and our whole lives and our whole upbringing is to see that you don't never ever go looking for the Sasquatch. You never ever go try and do anything like that. If you're one of the lucky ones to have the opportunity to experience him, then you're one of the lucky ones. And you will have some type of a good fortune um, in your life down the road. So that was always our perspective. So nobody goes around and looks around. Nobody ever goes hunts them or whatever. It is not our way to try and possess something like the truth. Not exclusively. The truth as we know it, as Native people, is everyone's truth. It's just that because we've been here so long, we know more of it, at least about here. And that's a fact that non-Indigenous people need to accept, especially as they move further into our spaces, whether physical, moral, or cultural. Here's Max Brooks. Sasquatch tells us about human arrogance smashing into the hard laws of nature. That's why I wrote this. I wrote this as, as a direct critique of urban humanity thinking it can impose its laws onto the laws of nature, which is exactly why these are the characters that I have. These are not rural people. These are urban people in a rural setting who thought through the use of cutting edge technology, they could create their idyllic world without realizing that they are a guest in someone else's house. The story of Sasquatch is one of the few stories that endured through that time when new foreign settlers on our land smashed through things, ignorant of what they were doing. In their wisdom, the elders of Stalus turned this blundering to their advantage. While Indian agents and others thought they were playing us for fools, they were in turn being used to break their own laws and write in their faces. In some of our legends, Sasquatch is a guardian, and he performed that role ably with the help of Stalus. He helped them adapt, and he led the way through those awful decades. If anyone deserves an appropriation prize, the Stalus people and their hairy, big-footed protector deserve it for that. The first century of Canada's presence in this region was a dark age in the truest sense. Stalus wasn't alone in resisting it. Everyone did in their ways. And each brought a piece of the truth into the future. Not just for us, but for everyone who will call this place home. What truth do we hear from the past? It's simple. There is something in these mountains. And you are asked to witness. That's your Canada land. Trying to process my own anger growing up. You don't seem like a very angry person. I'm angry, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's angry. That is from my 2019 interview with Strombo, with George Strombolopoulos. 
I have had a bunch of weird conversations with Canadian celebrities over the years. And if you're a Canada Land supporter, whether you're on Supercast, Apple, Patreon, wherever, you can now listen to a neat curated playlist of all those chats. We've put this together. Jay Baruchel, Sarah Pauly, a bunch of the kids in the hall. All of those conversations are there waiting for you in this bonus pack. And if you want to become a supporter, go to canadaland.com slash join. You'll get that bonus playlist along with a premium feed of this show in moments. Go check it out, canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read what you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com, where you can listen to Matea Roach's first episode as the new host of The Backbench this week. Go subscribe to that show. This episode was written and reported by Robert Jago and produced with Sarah Larniuk, Caleb Thompson, and Tristan Capicione. I'm Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, if you value any of the things we're doing at this network, our model relies on support from our listeners. Please become a part of this. Go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. We've made it super easy and you will be glad that you did. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.